namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sanghang namasami This next uh, talk is called Don't Be Afraid of Trusting Yourself. This was given on the 6th of August 2002. So that's uh, the year following the previous ones. (coughs) I'm on a sabbatical leave this year, which is quite a nice change. After being involved in teaching retreats and giving talks for 30 years or more, I asked for some time off. And now I'm wondering if I ever want to go back to teaching again. Actually, quote, sharing knowledge, unquote, is a more accurate way of thinking about what I do, because I don't particularly like the idea of being a teacher and holding to that position. That would be like establishing the sense of, I'm the teacher and you're the student. And that for some people is never questioned, so one can easily get stuck into roles like that. With the practice of awareness, we get behind the conventions that we are conditioned by. As John Peacock, who was uh, one of the other people at the, um, uh, the uh, centre was saying, at the uh, Leicester Summer School, and John is a lecturer in Buddhist studies at Bristol University and director of the Sharpham Centre for Contemporary Inquiry, or at least he was at that time. As John Peacock was saying last night, our interpretation of Buddhism is conditioned by our cultural way of perceiving things. The interpretation of the words and even the English translations that we choose are influenced by our own conditioned mind. A Christian missionary will interpret Buddhism one way, and a psychologist or a lawyer, say, will interpret it another. So recognize that awareness is the ability that you have to get to ground zero, quote-unquote, to the point before you were conditioned to the face before you were born, quote-unquote, to the deathless, before you were ever caught into a cultural or social conditioning process. Just to say a couple of things there, first of all. So this is a um, uh, one of the, the main the principles that Lumpur Cha would, uh, would focus on and that uh, uh, Lumpur Sumato and others of us have inherited from that. So rather than... Uh, uh, even though you have the position of being the teacher, sort of sitting in the chair and on the, the high seat or in the central position and do it, being the one who's doing the talking, the, the principle that uh, Lumpur Chah would always put across is that, yeah, I'm not the teacher, you are actually the teacher. That uh, I can sit here and make noises and, and explain things till, till the cows come home, but it's essentially up to each individual to teach themselves so that um, and uh, as he would say, you know, you could sit face to face with the Buddha, but if your mind is still filled with greed, hatred, and delusion, you know, it's, it's as if you're far away from the Buddha. Uh, and, uh, and similarly, if you are, uh, <coughs> uh, say, free of greed, hatred, and delusion, the mind is awake and aware. It's as if you're uh, <coughs> li- uh, listening to the Buddha face to face everywhere you go. Everything that you do, the Buddha is always there. And so the, the Buddha gave his... Um, Memorable simile, he said, uh, it's a little teaching in the Itivutaka called the, the hem of the robe. And he said, uh, you know, if, uh, if someone's heart is filled with greed, hatred, and delusion, they could be hanging on to the, to the, uh, the hem, the edge of the, of his robe and follow him around everywhere. But it would still be as if he was, they were far from the Tathagata, as if he was far from that, that person. And similarly, he said, someone could be on the other side of the Himalayas. But if their heart was free of greed, hatred, and delusion, it's as if they're sitting with the Tathagata face to face. So that uh, um, uh, I feel is a very important principle. And then one of Ajahn Chah's uh, books is called Everything is Teaching Us. And it's not just a, a nice way of talking, but he would emphasize that over and over again, that it's, it's, uh, uh, it's maybe inspiring or gladdening to hear the words of a teacher or to read the suttas and to, to be, um, say, taking those words in and going, oh, wow, that's really true, that's so helpful, that's really good. Um, but 
the actual training of our own hearts, the, the changing of our hearts, the changing of the way that we see things, the attitudes that we have, that's up to each one of us. And so, um, and Ajahn Chah was a very um, charismatic, very charming, very attractive teacher. People really liked to be close to him. They would like to be nearby. And Lumpur Sumedha similarly. So uh, there was, a, for Lumpur Chah in particular, there was a constant need to say, you know, don't, don't look at me, look at yourself. <laughs> don't look at me. Well, it's so wonderful how you say that, Lumpur. Yeah, <laughs> I know it's wonderful how I say it, but can you hear it? You know? <laughs> that uh, the, uh, the temptation, the inclination is, is always to put the, the source of, of wisdom and goodness out there. And that uh, Lumpur Chah, his whole style was to continually hand it back to you and say uh, that the source of authority is your own heart, the source of, of wisdom and the location of truth is your own heart. It's not. It's not being carried around somewhere else. So that the the role of the person in the teacher is like a, a, a catalyst, or um, in, like in a chemical reaction, a small speck of the right uh, ingredient will help a, a, a chemical reaction to happen. It's something that facilitates a process to go along, but the the catalyst is not an essential ingredient. In fact, the catalyst is sort of unchanged at the end of the reaction. It just helps the reaction to happen. So a really, I would say, a really good teacher is one who uh, functions in that way and just helps people to teach themselves. And so that uh, even though, uh, you know, we have this, say, the, the even in our names, Ajahn means teacher. You know? <laughs> it's right there on the label. But still, the uh, the principle, the framework, I feel, is very uh, important to um, to be, say, recognized in that way. Um, and the uh, this... Um, this phrase also in, in that second part where Lumpur uh, uses the face before you were born. This is a, um, a famous uh, statement from one of the uh, the Zen teachings, the Chan, um, out of the Chan tradition of China, the Sutra of Huineng, the sixth patriarch. And so that um, <coughs> the, um, so I imagine John Peacock, who um, uh, I understand is out of the Zen tradition, was probably using that, that phrase, my guess is that he was using that phrase uh, earlier in the Leicester Summer School teachings, but it's um, the, uh, um, the, the story of it is that, um, try and cut a long story short, so Hui Neng was an, an illiterate um, young man, a teenager, who came from um, uh, a remote part of China, and um, he... Uh, Went to go and uh, he heard a verse of the of the Diamond Sutra, the Vajra Sutra, being recited by somebody in uh, in his town, and um, the uh, um, uh, this he had a, uh, a profound moment of insight, uh, inspiration, and and he realized that he really wanted to go off and study uh, Buddha Dhamma. So he was uh, uh, he only had his mother and himself. The, the, he didn't have a, a father, and so. His mother relied on him to provide for her. Uh, he would sell firewood in the local market. But um, a, 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 a merchant who lived in the town was um, so impressed with young Huineng's kind of aspiration and his uh, understanding that he uh, provided uh, money, support for the, for the mother while Huineng went off to go and seek the Dhamma. And so then Huineng went off to the monastery of the fifth patriarch where he was put to work um, in the kitchen and was uh, helping to ground rice in the kitchen. Anyway, long story, cut a long story short, the um, the fifth patriarch realized this uh, illiterate kitchen boy is actually the one who understands my teaching better than all the other monks in the monastery. And it was like a huge place with like, uh, a thousand or two thousand members of the monastic community. And so um, uh, he uh, he realized he wanted to give the the Dharma transmission the 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 kind of the role of being the senior teacher to Hui Neng, uh, who was very young and, and couldn't even read. And so he, um, he, he passed on the, um, the, the patriarchy, the, the bowl and robe, as it said, uh, to Hui Neng in the middle of the night and said, um, you better take off with these because uh, the rest of the community are not going to be happy about this. So it was, it was a much more sort of politically hairy times. I'm sure that would never happen in the Western monasteries current age but he said you better leave because your life will be in danger if they if they hear that i've i've given you the um, transmission and, and named you as the next patriarch you know the, you could be in trouble so he took off and uh, went into the countryside 
And um, one, of, and so it was true. Some of the other members of the monastic community were extremely upset with this illiterate layman being uh, named as the next patriarch. And so they took off after him and tried to catch him. And there was a partic- uh, particular, um, <coughs> I think he was a, a monk who had been a soldier, was particularly athletic, and, and was the one who caught up with Huineng. And so it said that Huineng put the robe and the bowl, the, uh, supposed to be the Buddha's arms bowl, and uh, the Buddha's robe that they, was the insignia of the patriarchy, the, being the head uh, teacher. And he put it down on a rock uh, next to the path, and then the um, so this uh, this uh, uh, military monk who came along saw the robe and the bowl sitting on a rock and thought, oh well, obviously this lad has given up the the um, uh, <coughs> his uh, so his um, kind of hope to be to be named. He's sort of abandoned his uh, his position, and so I can just take the robe and the bowl and go back to um, to the monastery. Uh, but he couldn't lift them up, even though he was a big burly guy. He couldn't uh, couldn't physically lift them. And, um, and he thought, this is really strange. This is just a, a robe and a, an arms bowl. And, and with all my strength, I can't lift these off this rock. Something weird is going on here. So then young Huineng kind of appeared from behind the rock and, and said, need any help? <laughs> so they had a dialogue. And in that dialogue, then that was when Huineng spoke to, to the, um, this uh, monk who'd been chasing him and uh, said, you know, show me your face before, uh, before your mother and father were born. Or show me your original face, and um, and so then, there the monk who'd been chasing him had a, a moment of great uh, insight, enlightenment, and uh, and a faith in Huineng arose, and uh, <coughs> so he said, "Well, you better. Uh, I, I I see that you really are genuinely um, suited to the task of being this teacher, and so you better take the robe and bowl and go on your way, and I'll I'll misdirect everybody else who's chasing you. I'll tell them they you're not up here." And so then, after that encounter, then this um, t- uh, "show me your face before your mother and father were born," uh, "show me your original face" was a, became one of the standard um, uh, koans or kung an in Chinese. That's the Chinese speakers. Is that the right pronunciation? Kung an. What's your original face before you were born? But the word for is it kung an for the. Thank you. <clears throat> so to continue. What is pure awareness? Where is it? When most of us first start meditating, we come from a place of ignorance. I started with the thought, I'm a confused person and I need to practice meditation in order to become enlightened. That was how I saw myself when I started meditating years ago. I saw myself in this critical way. I shouldn't be the way I am. I've got to be better than this by doing something that will make me better in the future. In some ways, on a conventional level, this was true. It wasn't that it was totally fo- a, f- a totally false perception, but it was a perception. If we grasp such perceptions, they will influence how we experience what teachers say, how we read scriptures, and how we treat the religious conventions and techniques that we use. In Thailand, I noticed that Westerners who ordain into the Thai system bring with them a strong sense of self. Thai culture is socially oriented. Its identity is on a very wide spectrum, and social relationships and sensitivities are very strong. Most of us don't have that. Our culture is quite different. Americans, anyway, are very individualistic. We demand our rights, stand up for ourselves, and assert ourselves, and on and on like that. You can see this on an international level as well. Now, I'm not saying that this is wrong. I'm merely pointing to how it affects conscious experience. Recognize also the strong sense of self-criticism and self-disparagement that is common in the Western world. We're very aware of what is wrong with us, of what is not right, the weaknesses, the faults and flaws. We often see ourselves through these perceptions of something wrong and I'm not good enough the way I am. The Thai forest tradition has a strong disciplinary aspect to it. So Westerners tend to go into strict Vinaya monasteries with the sense of, I'm a flawed and weak person, and I need to purify myself through keeping these rules. This, of course, has a certain effect. For one thing, by holding to rules or precepts that are given to us 
we can easily become insensitive because the sense of our self-worth depends on keeping these rules. If we cannot keep them according to the standard we have, we tend to feel worse than we did before. We feel we're not good monks, not worthy of the robe. As alms mendicants, we're dependent on the goodness of others. So we might find ourselves thinking, I'm not worthy of these alms, and get into states of self-loathing. So just to say a little bit about that um, that uh, perception of the um, you know, the Thai um, the social order, it's it's very striking that um, the <coughs> living in northeast Thailand, um, and I think it's still pretty much the same today as it was th- uh, forty years ago, fifty years ago, that the village comes first, then the family, and then you as an individual. Uh, uh, sort of a, a, the, the last of considerations. So somebody who um, is helpful to the village, say that they're always making um, themselves available when it's time for for planting out seedlings or helping to gather in the the, the, the rice crop or helping someone to fix up their, their house or if their, their roof has collapsed uh, you know, to volunteer to help out. Someone who's very communally minded they will be highly praised and regarded as a very important and worthy person in the village, even if they're incredibly poor or come from a, a, um, a very uneducated family. That person will be regarded, oh, that's a really good person, something sort of really noble, wonderful, impressive. And someone who thinks of themselves, who, who is proud or who thinks they're more important than anyone else, uh, they'll be regarded as a total idiot, even if they've got university degrees or maybe because they've got a university degree. But uh, any, anyone who's sort of puffed up or they consider themselves more significant or more, uh, their, their feelings and their, their wishes are more significant than anyone else's is, uh, <coughs> yeah, even if they have a, a, you know, a fancy name or they're big landowners or they're a child of the, you know, the, the head of the village, they'll be looked down upon as a, as a fool, as an idiot, as someone who is not really worthy of respect and they will not be sort of... Uh, Listened to or or, um, or held in, in in good regard in in the village, so it's <coughs> it's very much a, um, a kind of different way around than in the West. And as Lumpur points out, in in America, the um, the the culture is very very individualistic. It's like you know the cult of the individual, me first, and and me winning is the most important thing in the world. So the the um, <coughs> the, uh, the, uh, the cultural conditioning that we have coming into to Dhamma life then has its effect. And so he's pointing about pointing out about how that can uh, say um, affect the way that we, we function. So that when we are, um, are living in a, a communal way, then for many Westerners it's it's kind of hard to get along with other people and you feel it's a real challenge to rise up and fit in with a group. Whereas um, for most of the people from northeast Thailand, functioning as part of a group was sort of that that's the norm, and and sharing everything, and and, and uh, living as a in a communal way would be uh, what they were familiar with. Oh, this is a logical process, isn't it? If I'm identified with being this physical body and this personality, and if I'm very aware of what is wrong with these things, I might try to make myself into a better person by endlessly meditating and keeping the moral precepts. But then if I find I can't live up to the standard I hold, an ideal standard of what I should be, I tend to have this sense of, see, I'm too weak, I'm not good enough. Living the holy life then can lead to an even greater lack of self-worth. And it all comes from the basic delusion, putting it in Theravadan terms that I am the five aggregates, the five khandas, identifying with the five aspects of form, body, feeling, perception, mental formations and consciousness, rupa, vedana, sanya, sankara, vijnana. The Buddha used this five aggregates teaching as an expedient means, a convenient way of simplifying everything. If you begin to break yourself down into these five aspects or groups, kanda, you start to question the assumption that I am this permanent personality from which you see through very critical, from which you see through very critical eyes. So, how do we get behind this? What do we do? It's not a question of going into reverse and saying, I am good enough. I am the deathless. I am the Buddha. I'm a wonderful guy. One can go into a kind of positive thinking mode. I'm totally wonderful and beautiful and lovable. 
That's better than doing the reverse, I think, because you might at least have a few happy moments out of that. <laughs> but they'll you know, probably put a few people off as well. <clears throat> but the problem is not with the thoughts or perceptions as such. It's with the way we hold to thoughts and perceptions, the way we identify with them and cling to them. If I have the fixed perception that I am a flawed person and am not good enough the way I am, if that's the assumption I make about myself, it tends to influence how I relate to the world, to other people, to monasticism, and to everything. At one time I developed a kind of skillful means and intentionally thought, I am not good enough the way I am. Quote, unquote. But instead of analyzing this statement, I just reflected on it, just became aware of it. If you learn how to listen to yourself, to listen to your thoughts when you think, I am not good enough the way I am, for example, you'll begin to realize that this is actually just something you're creating in your mind. There is that which is aware of thought, and there is the perception that you create, and you begin to separate the two. So the awareness is the focus. And this is the emphasis the Buddha made. Our ability in this present moment is to be awake and fully with the way it is, to be awake to how things around us are affecting us through sight, sound, smell, taste, and touch. Explore this sense of I am. I am this physical body. This is me. If we begin to listen to this sense of my body, what I look like, and become aware of the way we see ourselves as attractive or unattractive, male or female, and so on, we realize that these are perceptions we create. We identify strongly just on one level of gender, for example. The, I'm a man, you're a woman, kind of thing. Seems obvious, just common sense. The body is either male or female. That's the nature of the body. But is this body what I really am? I encourage you to explore what this body is. It has a momentum all of its own. It's born, grows up, gets old and dies. And no matter how hard we try to prevent it from getting ill and old, it still does it, doesn't it? And then there's the inevitable death of the body. I can say to myself, don't get old, tomato. I can say that. But the body doesn't obey. It doesn't obey because it isn't me. So it's like telling a leaf not to wither and fall off a tree. I can't do that. It's beyond my ability. So in, in this respect of uh, looking at the, the five khandhas and, um, and uh, say, the, the sense of, of judgment that the mind makes, like, I'm not good enough, or... Um, the uh, the way that uh, the mind forms its view that I, you know, I am I'm impure I'm imperfect. What's happening there is that the the uh, the judgment of uh, yeah um, yeah my concentration is not very good or I wasn't particularly kind in the way I spoke to that person. That um, therefore everything about me is bad and wrong. That's the the assumption that the mind is making. I'm not good enough, and so that the um, the attention can dwell upon all of the faults and and to say make that the the focus or the say give that uh, the the power or the, the dominant perception and uh, also in the terms of western thinking that even though we might not have grown up in a very strong um, uh, say religious environment still it's in the air the the concept of original sin and so being born as as sinners and that uh, the the judeo judeo christian mindset of the the western world in particular has this, I'm not good enough, I'm impure, um, I'm guilty of something. And so particularly um, <coughs> the, uh, in, the, in the West, this is a, a strong perception that's sort of fed uh, to us in, in, our, in our culture, in our education, in the family, in the, the, the way that the, the society functions. And um, the, uh, so that, that, I mean, these are broad statements, but it's, it is very much that way. And so that um, there was a very interesting dialogue years ago when uh, the King of Thailand was being interviewed by the, by the BBC. Uh, I think it was a documentary called "The, the Soul of a Nation," and um, the 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 King of Thailand was trying to uh, explain the difference of uh, of worldview that there was between the Western countries and and the sort of Judeo-Christian view and the Buddhist view, and uh, and he made this point. He said, "In the West, you talk about original sin." That you feel that you're, you know, you're born with this um, basic impurity, 
and that um, <coughs> you, know, you are, are uh, uh, impure from the beginning. So from, in Buddhism, we think in terms of original purity or original blessing, uh, original purity, and that uh, the fundamental nature of what we are is pure and perfect, and that's you know, obscured by, by ignorance, by the habits of the, the mind towards greed, hatred, and delusion, but that right at the very heart of, uh, of what we are is that which is good and pure uh, and um, uh, unshakable. And so that uh, uh, was a very good way, I, I felt a very good way uh, of putting it, and uh, also not just in the sort of Western religious field, but also in the uh, Western psychological mode, uh, the um, Freudian view of the, the mind. So at the very basis of mind, you have what's called the id, id, the id, which um, one way that Freud described it is the black tide of mud, which is not to, not to be kind of um, uh, negative about mud and blackness. <laughs> They're kind of the dark sludge at the bottom of the pond is sort of, the dark sludge at the bottom of your of your heart is like what you really are. So the the, the id is a sort of basis of our being. Um, again, that's a, a sweeping description of Freudian psychology, but it, that does carry through. And uh, and also, when I was a the first term I spent as a psychology student, um, we were we were studying Freud, and uh, one of the the um, the passages of one of I think it was from his first book, The Interpretation of Dreams, that was quoted. There was a sort of quite a uh, when it was it was quoted by the lecturer as a, something that was sort of uh, in, supposed to be inspiring and good. Was that Freud said, "The best that my method can do is to transform your neurotic misery into ordinary human unhappiness." <laughs> <laughs> Probably sounds much better in German, but. Uh, the best that my method can do is to transform your neurotic misery into ordinary human unhappiness. And something in me just kind of snapped, like, no, we can do better than that. You know, I'm sure. And I was only a kind of 18, you know, 18-year-old undergraduate. And so sort of, you know, he was the, the, the lecturer was the expert. And I didn't really have anything to back it up with, but something in me just said, no, and proceeded to argue. Uh, but... Um, and then uh, I think it, it's it's re- that intuition that I, I had as a confused eighteen-year-old was uh, I would say it's very much in alignment with with uh, Buddhist tradition that we can do better than ordinary human unhappiness. <laughs> we have more of a potential, and so that yeah, Amravati means the deathless realm. So we're kind of upping the ante. Right? This is a, the deathless realm is a place uh, is a possibility that uh, the deathless can be realized. Is a, that is a, a genuine possibility for us, but um, we might forget that. You know, the mind is caught up in greed, hatred, and delusion. But I think it's helpful, as Don Posamato is pointing out here, to bring attention to the cultural conditioning that we have. And even those people who've been born in Asia have probably inherited enough Western conditioning to be um, <laughs> feeling they're not good enough either. Uh, and so that um, it's not just confined to, to people who are born and grown up in the West, but it's a, it, it also kind of trickles through society around the world. So, any thoughts, reflections, perceptions? Okay. <clears throat> so then I realize it is foolish to identify, to cling, to hold to the five aggregates, five khandas, as some kind of personal possession. And if I really explore them, I see that they are conditions in nature. They follow nature's laws. They are what they are. Sometimes they're very pleasant. Sometimes they're horrible. That's the way nature is, good and bad, right and wrong. The point is to see that this world, this conditioned realm that we are experiencing, is like this. As you observe, as you listen to this sense of I am, just on a very personal level, I am not good enough, for example, you begin to notice the effect it has on your consciousness. When you hold to a view like that, you begin to notice a sense of depression, embarrassment or timidity. That means being um, afraid or worried, um, kind of pressured, scared. So depression, embarrassment, or timidity, because that is the result. That's the emotional result of holding to, I'm not good enough the way I am. 
Now, this is not an analytical process. This is awareness. As I said before, it's not a question of trying to change the attitude you have towards yourself, but of getting behind any attitude that you have. Seeing it as a viewpoint. Seeing it as something you assume or believe. Pure awareness is not dependent on what you're thinking, your physical condition, your emotional state, or the conditioned realm, because it is what you can always refer to or be. You can always be the awareness, no matter what the conditions are, externally or internally. We have to really apply ourselves, however, really be fearless in our investigations, because there are a lot of subtle assumptions and things we might be very attached to, things we might not yet be ready to let go of. So just trust yourself in letting go of the things that you can let go of in the present. I'm not saying you should let go of everything during the summer school, and that by the time you leave here I want you to be completely free of all attachments, that would be asking the impossible. I'm encouraging you rather to have more confidence in your recognition of attachment, not as a judgment against it, but in order to realize what it's like, to see that it is wanting things to be what they cannot be, or holding to views and having to defend your views, maybe feeling threatened when your views are challenged. So many years ago, um, when we first had converted the, uh, the, the, the building over here to be the offices and the library, um, and uh, Sister Jodhika was the, the monastery secretary, and uh, <coughs> she, was, um, uh, she had a, a, a cartoon, um, it was Hagar the Horrible, anyone remember Hagar the Horrible? A regular cartoon. So Hagar the Horrible is this kind of um, Nordic character that would appear as a cartoon strip in some newspapers. And uh, Hagar the Horrible is climbing up this cliff face and he comes up to this, this ledge on the cliff face and there's this, uh, this uh, uh, like a hermit sitting on the ledge on the cliff with a long, a long beard. And Hagar says, What is the secret of happiness? And the hermit says, Poverty, fasting, celibacy and abstinence. Then the next picture is Hagar going, and then he says, is there someone else up here I can talk to? <laughs> <laughs> so that was the kind of your entry to the office, to Sister Jodhika's room for a, uh, yeah, for a long time. And so that's, uh, I think in a way, like, like many cartoons, like much humor, it's, uh, it's the reason why we laugh is like, yeah, I know that. <laughs> But there's something in us that says, uh, or like, or like um, St. Augustine was uh, famous for having said, the uh, Christian saint, O oh Lord, grant me purity, but not yet. You know, so there's just a few things I can't quite let go of. Just, you know, can we negotiate? You know? And so that, uh, but in a sense, so that why St. Augustine would put that down in writing is to, to uh, in the same way, you're, you're acknowledging that's how we are as human beings. We're, we want to. We we know that we need to let go, but there's certain things that that uh, can't be let go of just yet. And similarly, uh, one of the very helpful comments of Lumpur Cha um, in one of his Dhamma talks is that where he says, and I've quoted this this many many times, dozens if not hundreds of times, where he says uh, 50 to 70 percent of the, the practice of Dhamma is knowing that you should let go and not being able to. Yeah, say that again. So 50 to 70% of the practice is knowing that you should let go, but not being able to. So it's not just giving yourself a good excuse, but <laughs> we might do. But uh, it's just saying that that which is doing the holding on is working for a different company than the, the one that's doing the letting go. You know, one is a Mac, the other one's a PC. You know, kind of, they're working on different systems. So it's like if you are addicted to cigarettes, and you, you, know, you know you want to stop smoking. Um, but that which says, I really need a cigarette, I really want like a smoke, is, is coming from a different place than the, this is really stupid, I don't need to do this, uh, why don't I stop? So that um, that uh, uh, recognition is that you can't just use a, a conceptual thought or a, a personal decision to say, okay, from this time I'm going to stop this. Or you say, I've got a real anger problem, I, I'm very reactive, I, I, I blow up when people uh, annoy me. Uh, okay, so from today, no more anger. <laughs> okay, I'm going to give up lust. Okay, no more, no more random sexual desire. That's it. Had enough of that. Good, you know, good luck. 
It's, a, it's not the way that it works. We can see that's a, a useful principle to be able to give up things that we can uh, see as being obstructive. But the, uh, the, say, the momentum or the, the strength of attachment, the habituation of the mind and the body to the that system, it can't just be overridden by an idea. That you, know, that you can recognize, yeah, this is totally uh, inarguably useful and good, say, to stop smoking. Is, uh, yeah, that's obviously a good thing. But that that idea or that thought on its own is not enough just to change the behavior. So part of the this very practical approach both Lumpo Sumedho and Lumpo Cha uh, have, have say, given to us as an inheritance is that kind of starting from where you are, like, yes, I know it's a good idea to give up, but uh, not yet. You know, is there someone else up here I can talk to? So, <laughs> do I have to give up everything just yet? Can I? There was, uh, I think, Ajahn... Uh, Ajahn Tita Dhammo, who's one of the senior monks at, at Chidhurst, is a very unique and eccentric character. So when we first met him, he had this kind of massive bush of, of hair and a big bushy beard. And uh, he slowly got closer and closer to Chidhurst. He would sort of be camping out in the woods or in the countryside around. He'd, he'd surely asked uh, uh, Ajahn Sujita if he could become an Anagarika. And he said, "Yeah, well, you, uh, yeah, you, you need to. Um, if you become an Anagarika, you know, you're going to have to lose your hair and your beard." It's like, <laughs> not, it was very much here's this kind of nature, uh, sort of, a, sort of Mr. Natural kind of a guy that was sort of like to live out in the woods and be out in the weather, and and he's always making these interesting sculptures and images out of bits of uh, of um, uh, tree branch and leaves and and chestnut. You know, husks and whatnot. He, was a incredi- he still is incredibly creative, amazingly gifted artist. And so, as the the time for his um, Anagarika uh, uh, sort of going forth was was approaching, then his hair got shorter and shorter and shorter, <laughs> and he kind of got down to his sort of a little buzz cut around his head, and then his head was shaved, and his beard got smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, and kind of crept down his chin, kind of his moustache went, and there's just this. Last little wedge of, of beard on the edge of his lip, and then that, finally that the day before his his Anagarika precepts, and the, the last the last bit went. So he had to let, he wanted to let go, but it's just you know bit by bit. And I'm not making fun of him. It's just like yeah, that's how it is. <laughs> that we uh, you know that there's that uh, sometimes it takes a uh, a while to to do that that letting go, and that. It's a a process that sort of takes shape within us. We have to really apply ourselves, however, really be fearless in our investigations, because there are a lot of subtle assumptions and things we might be very attached to. Now, just as an experiment, we can sit for a while and try to make whatever comes into the mind fully conscious. Happiness, sadness, uncertainty, Confusion, inspiration, depression. Doesn't matter what the condition is, just listen to it. Just let it be what it is. And recognize that your relationship to it now is listening, not judging. You're not trying to pass any kind of value judgment about anything, allowing even something unpleasant to be fully accepted in this conscious moment. Make a special note of the listening and the object you are listening to. Listening inwardly to your thoughts, for example. Just notice the thoughts move and change. You cannot sustain a thought, can you? You cannot keep one thought, but you can be aware of its movement. This is the separating the subject from the object by being the subject. Be the witness, the knower. And then the known is, say, thinking or feeling. Thinking is culturally conditioning. We are conditioned to think about things. We're also sensitive and have feelings. We can feel lonely or sad or confused. There is knowing these things, isn't there? You might think, I'm feeling sad today. And there's awareness of the feeling, what it's like, and also that it changes. So there is that which is aware, and there is the object that you're aware of. If you grasp the object, you become someone who is sad, say. And that is what we call becoming. If somebody says something that makes you angry, Angry feelings arise. Then if you grasp those feelings, you become an angry person and might act on it. You could blow it, in other words, and start yelling, saying unkind things, and even getting physically violent because of becoming. 
The point is to know the difference between the objects and the awareness of them. The five aggregates are the objects. That is, putting that which is aware into the context of, say, Buddha or the Buddha, the knowing, the awakened state. The sense of awakening is very significant. This is a wake-up teaching. We think we are awake because our eyes are open and we're not lying down sleeping, but we might still be completely lost in delusion and living in the realm of assumptions and habits. The Buddha, the awakened one, woke up to this. It's not a question of saying, I shouldn't be like this, I shouldn't be ignorant, I shouldn't be angry. This is making it into a personal judgment, getting stuck in the same realm again. We know we shouldn't be like that. Our social values tell us that we should conquer anger and lust, comply with all the other shoulds. We all know what we should do. That's not the point, is it? The point is to be aware of the way it actually is. So this uh, um, process that uh, Lumpur is talking about here, this is very closely aligned with uh, what is we have in the uh, Satipatthana Sutta, particularly the, the third section of the um, the four foundations of mindfulness, which is called Chittanupassana, mindfulness of of uh, mind states or moods, uh, and so it, uh, it's the uh, I, uh, I believe it's almost the, the shortest section of the of the Satipatthana Sutta, um, but it's re- it's very significant because. What, uh, what you have in that, uh, that section, you have these pairs of qualities, um, and the, the Buddha's talking about establishing mindfulness uh, in relationship to those qualities. And it's just, in this, exact, in this exact way, it's in a very non-judgmental mode. So knowing the expanded mind is expanded and the contracted mind is contracted. The agitated mind is agitated and the mind free of agitation is free of agitation. The mind filled with anger is being filled with anger, the mind free of anger is being free, free of anger, and so forth. So there's no there's no value judgment of uh, expanded is good, contracted is bad, or, or agitated is bad, uh, and peaceful is good, and so on. There's just they're just pairs of, of opposites, and and it speaks about the establishing of mindfulness just to the extent to know there is this. So this is the angry mind. This is the peaceful mind. This is the happy mind. This is the unhappy mind. This is the contracted mind. This is the expanded mind. So that there's just that simple knowing uh, of the quality that, that's present without any kind of value judgment being being put upon it, simply to the extent of knowing there is this. And that's that's how it's put in the sutta. So a lot of uh, Lumpur's teachings uh, are sort of very akin, very close to that, and that uh, it is, so it's really one of the so essential limbs uh, of the development of, of mindfulness is that uh, recognizing that which knows anger is not angry, that which knows agitation is not agitated, that which knows peaceful, that's which, that which knows calmness is not calm. <laughs> Interesting. But uh, the, that quality of of knowing is beyond, it's, as he says, getting behind the, all those uh, qualities, getting behind the experience, getting behind the, those patterns of the uh, moods and, and uh, mental states, so that uh, and the, he's pointing out this is always a capacity that, that we have, but it, it needs to be developed because the habits of uh, I'm angry or I'm right, you're wrong, I've got a, something to say or um, I, I want to keep quiet, I've got nothing to say, you know, all those I am's um, so easily form and seem so so real, so so solid, and uh, uh, the mind automatically goes uh, gets born into them. It's the uh, becoming so. It, uh, so it takes a lot of alertness, a lot of, so in this, uh, if you like, mental acuity, kind of keenness of attention to know, oh, this is an angry feeling. It's not me being angry, or this is um, my um, my restless feeling. It's like, no, this is a uh, a restless urge has, has arisen. It doesn't have to be followed. It doesn't have to be suppressed. Uh, it doesn't have to um, have any uh, judgment made on it. It's just here's a restless feeling. Here's an angry feeling. Here's a peaceful feeling. Here's a, a happy feeling. Here's a sad feeling, and that uh, in that um, that kind of disentangling, um, then uh, this is uh, it's not making us kind of numb or, or foolish or, or, or dissociated. It's not like a spacing out and uh, kind of drifting off into a a, a distracted uh, realm, but rather in a mysterious way that disentanglement. Uh, increases the the ability to respond to uh, the the 
the experiences that are there in a uh, in an unselfish and appropriate and, and sensitive way. So that, but the more the mind is is b- becoming and getting born into liking, disliking, um, and the moods and feelings, um, perceptions, then the 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 judgments to speak or to act or to to be still that come from that are always going to be a bit out of harmony. The more that the mind that awareness is not entangled, not identified with the five khandhas, then in a mysterious way, it's more sensitive to it. So, like a if an orchestral a conductor of or an orchestra is obsessed with um, the um, they had an argument with somebody in the violins, or uh, they they are um, their their best friend is uh, uh, playing in the the wind section. So they're gonna the someone who's on the flute is their is their best friend or someone they're in love with. So that they don't want to correct them because it's the one they love or the one in the string section playing the violin is really annoyed them, so they're always going to be wrong. <laughs> so if the conductor is biased, then it's going to affect the music, right? So that, uh, in, uh, But if the conductor is unbiased, then they can actually attune to the, the music that's being played and guide it in, a, in the most uh, perfect and, and beautiful way because of the fact they're not biased about liking this or disliking that. Or, and uh, so they can uh, be the the catalyst or the agent whereby the, the most you know, beautiful and uh, uh, well-integrated form I- emerges from that. Yes? To what extent do you think that this kind of um, unbiased observation of states that arise, let's say states that are unpleasant, um, needs to be complemented with investigation as well, as opposed to, for example, on the one hand, you have, let's say, anger coming up and there's some okay, anger but not investigating it, or on the other hand, still observing it in, in an unbiased manner. Well, they all, that all works together. I mean, that's, uh, they're not sort of, you're, you're not like sort of choosing ingredients off the shelf in the, in the larder you know, or the chemistry lab. You know, it's a, they, they, those qualities overlap so, to a certain degree, so that... Um, that the, the the thing that's recognizing oh th- this is anger is also um, that there's a reflective quality to that as well so they're, they're not entirely separate and that um, and it also there's to uh, and as a rule of thumb then the, you know, the the so they're not entirely separate but it's how much you choose to use a particular quality is uh, is sort of uh, up to the the, the kind of judgment uh, in the moment so that then say if an angry feeling arises then as a I was just actually having a conversation earlier today with someone saying well my rule of thumb is if you if you ask if you, if you see like an angry feeling arising then if you ask the question oh, where's that come from or what's that about if there's an immediate intuitive association of oh it's because um, I'm un- I, I, I'm uncomfortable I'm feeling kind of frazzled and tired and so that's why that that, that someone made a comment and it, it made this angry feeling arise. Maybe so there's an immediate association. That, oh yeah, well you're really tired. And you, you you know that you're you're tired and frazzled, so that you knew this was likely to to cause this kind of reaction. If you ask that question, oh that's that, that's an angry you know that's an angry feeling. Where does that come from? And what arises is then leave it alone. Just don't don't try and fill that up. Don't get too analytical about it. And so, nine times out of ten, when when you ask that kind of question, where does this come from? The answer is, who knows? It's just it's just there because it's there. And so, I, my experience is, I would suggest, it, it's not worth projecting too much or kind of reading too much into it, because we can create whole kind of stories and mythologies of who we are and why we are the way we are and what, what our particular experiences and perceptions mean. And we can create whole complicated sagas <laughs> that don't really have any substance at all. So, but uh, when there is that uh, like an intuitive recognition, uh, they say, oh, I th- yeah, it's because of that. Similarly, when people say, well, uh, um, if you have a, a, a dream, a very, a very vivid dream, and uh, you want to know what that's about, I would give the same kind of advice. If you, if you bring the, the dream to mind and say, well, what was that about? And then, oh, that's all, actually, that's how 
uh, I relate to my mother. That's that's what that was about. And then okay, that's that was telling me something about about how I relate to my mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you say, well, what the heck was that about? And then again, if the answer is just who knows, then leave it. Just park it on the mystery shelf. Just okay. Maybe that has some meaning or not, but uh, just leave it alone. So that's that's how I, I tend to relate to that. So the because uh, you can you can create a lot of stuff with projection. Just feeling you've got to fill up a gap, but it's far more skillful to let things because most of life is mysterious. I would say, I would say, and to just let it things be unknown. And sometimes it can be. Um, uh, you know, six months later or a year or two later, that you realize, oh, that's what that was all about. Oh my goodness, I never saw that. And so there's something that, that it just needed a um, time to be to be looked at or to be seen happening over and over again before the penny drops and you go, oh, okay, that's what that's about. Finally, uh, but at the time, it just you couldn't really use your thinking faculty to come to a reliable conclusion. So it's best just to leave it. I would say. I guess I was thinking more than thinking about the external origins like parents and childhood and all that, more creating the experience as it as it manifests now down and for example obviously it's like the heartbeat and the like the the empty matrix as it were here mm-hmm. and now and what it is rather than pro psychoanalysis and all that. Uh, yeah, uh, the um uh, well, one of the, the most re- reliable ways of investigating feeling is to go to the body and just look at the physical sensations that go with any any particular wave of thought or emotion. And that um, <coughs> and so sometimes just bringing attention to the body and the, the feelings of the body and saying, well, and exploring that, say, well, okay, how much is this influencing the mind state? That, uh, that can be a very helpful uh, thing. And also the... Um, you know, the degree to which the mind can say, "Oh, this is just, uh, oh, this is just you know, thought, or this is memory operating, or this is imagination operating, or this is physical sensation operating," but uh, the the measure is always: okay, does this lead to the ending of suffering? Does this reduce suffering, or is this the mind trying to have a come, trying to come up with a story or a map or an explanation? You know, what's the effect of that? So it's always to the the important thing is if there is that kind of deconstructing or, or looking at how things are put together. The point is that they lead towards dukkhaniroda, and and uh, so that that's um, that that kind of oh, it's just uh, the reason why I I had that angry feeling is because my body is really tense. Okay, look at that. And then then it can lead to the body relaxing. Oh, look at that. Suddenly that feeling of the reactivity has gone away because my body's relaxed now. So, um, making sure that, that that kind of deconstructing or exploring, it's it's leading to simplic- simplification and ending of dukkha. Okay, so I'll just read a little bit more. This is where I encourage you to trust yourself. And it's like an intuitive function. You can't get at it. You can't really say, ah, this is it, and hold it in your hand. It's something that you have to trust within yourself. It is your awakenedness. What is it for when you are awake? It's no good asking me what it's like for you, or asking me whether you are awake or not. Action Sumato, am I awake? It isn't for me to know that. It's for you to know it. That is where the teacher-student thing can get in the way. Because students empower the teacher. Ajahn Sumedho knows what's good for me. I'm so stupid and hopeless. I'm a clumsy person. And I've done a lot of foolish things in my life. But Ajahn Sumedho, he knows what I need. Then I say, yeah, you've lived a pretty stupid life. And you should never trust yourself. I know what's good for you. That would be reinforcing the assumption that I am the expert and you are the student. It isn't a matter of assuming the opposite either. I'm just as good as Ajahn Sumedha, you know. With meditation, you're getting beyond that. You're learning to trust in your own intuitive sense, in the awakenedness of your own mind, and really making that a fully conscious experience. 
It's not just some idea in your brain, but something you really know, really know and trust. At first, maybe your own intuitive sense doesn't seem all that trustworthy, because there's nothing you can get hold of in the way you want to. This is where I encourage you to trust more in your direct experience than in ideas you have from the tradition. No matter how good those ideas might be, as long as you grasp them, you're trying to interpret life from somebody else's point of view. We can easily get intimidated by what others think and say, what we feel the world expects of us. We can become very frightened by that and mistrust ourselves. And in our materialistic society, I've noticed, we can appear quite confident, but are not. We can give the impression of being an authority or an expert just by knowing a lot of things. I know all about Theravada Buddhism. I'm an expert. And yet, if we never practice, the confidence fails when it gets to the realities of life, to the emotional stress, the loss of loved ones, the disappointments. All of these things are part of the human experience. No matter how expert we are on the teachings of the Pali Canon, if we've not really applied those teachings in our lives and learned how to trust in our own intuitive sense, then they won't help very much when the going gets tough. Just to say to somebody that it's all impermanence, unsatisfactoriness and not self, somehow sounds like an empty statement when, that's person, when that person's life has got difficult, when he's lost his job, or his wife has died, or his electricity has been cut off. Just to say, well, you know, everything's impermanent, sounds a bit hollow. During this summer school, then, I encourage you to really listen inwardly. If you're unhappy, full of doubts, low, bored, or maybe feeling elated, Rather than trying to suppress it or just endlessly tell people about it, listen to it. I'm bored. I'm bored. You can then begin to get in touch with boredom. You can accept it in a way. It's not a matter of trying to figure out why you're bored or blaming it on somebody else. I'm bored because of him. I'm I'm bored because of the summer school. Just use the boredom to open to it, to understand boredom, to recognize it. If somebody says something that offends you or upsets you, Use that to learn from. When we start analysing, it gets back into the same problem of why do I get so upset when you do that? We might think about it and try to figure it out. And it's interesting sometimes to do that. But it doesn't solve the problem. At least not until we learn how to recognise that being upset is like this. Feeling lonely is like this. But that which is aware, is that lonely? Is awareness lonely, or is the object of awareness lonely? Investigate that relationship. <clears throat> so again, that um, is uh, speaking of this sort of basic gesture of meditation, is an, uh, an, in a sense allowing the awareness and the objects of awareness to to separate out from each other. And uh, the uh, the image that uh, Lumpur Cha used for this. Um, that is often is often mentioned, and I feel is very very helpful, is that of oil and water in a bottle. So you have oil and water uh, together in a bottle. And you, you shake the bottle up, and then it seems to be a single liquid. If the bottle is shaken a lot, then it seems to be one one single fluid. But you put the bottle down, or you stop shaking it, and then the oil and the water separate on their own. So then Pochara said, this is like awareness and the objects of awareness. It's because of our our attachment and our habits of of I, me, and mine, and uh, the uh, the minds clinging to the five khandas, that's the shaking of the bottle. It's endlessly being uh, stirred up together. If there's that putting the bottle down, which is not a, a, not a kind of a heroic effort or a massive effort, it's just a, a letting go of the grasping, put the bottle down, and then the oil and the water separate on their own. You don't have to, to do it. It's like uh, it's something that happens by itself. Like we don't say, I beat my heart. Right? No, the heart beats because it's 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 a natural function. There's not there's no personal control. It's our heart, but it's not, uh, and but it's not uh, something that I am beating. It's not a, it's not something that I am doing. It just it, it beats on its own. We don't say my gravity or I'm I'm gravity because it, it's gravity works without personal engagement, personal involvement, and so that then the um, uh, the the way that the uh, say the Lumpur Cha and Lumpur Sameda are, are teaching is with that same kind of 
of um, say natural quality of the, when the, the grasping stops, then there's a, a, a natural separation, a disentangling, like the, the water and the oil move apart from each other, the awareness and the objects of the awareness uh, uh, separate out from each other. So there's, uh, it's not a thing I have to do. You don't have to create the oil or, 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 uh, or the water. You don't have to, to make that there. It's already there. The awareness is a function of your own, your own chitta already. Uh, it doesn't have to be created. It's just the, the lack of grasping helps it to, uh, say, no longer be entangled, to be, to be mixed up together with the objects. And so that then, if that, uh, is, uh, if that lack of grasping, that, that uh, letting go is established, then the, the heart naturally relates to it, the objects of experience uh, with, a, with a, a kind of um, <coughs> spacious and uh, and uh, uh, unentangled, uh, uh, non-grasping attitude. There's a there's an, an ease and a, a comfort, a spaciousness in the way that the mind relates to its experiences. So I'll leave it there for today. <coughs> Amen.